Pray with me, please. Father, we give you thanks for your word and for your great mercy, for your grace, for the love that you have for us that transforms our very lives. I pray, Father, that what I have to say may glorify you. If there is anything that is from me here this morning, may it be forgotten quickly. But I pray that your word would remain and that your people would glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I made a joke in the first service. I'll I'll try several jokes today with you and see if you're with me. That was the first one, and some of you laughed, so I'm grateful. I also wanted to thank Peter for giving me a passage 33 verses long to preach from. That, too, is a joke. Um, we, we have to cover a lot of ground. There's, there's these historical narratives that happen, especially in Luke, uh, when, when Luke records in Luke Acts, and he'll, he'll cover a lot of ground. Peter tried to cover a lot of ground last week when he was talking about God's pace and how, how he would say, hey, 14 years passed between this verse and this verse, and we were trying to read the gospel with the epistle together. And, and there was a sense where God's pace is not our pace, Right? And so just because it's, it's written this way doesn't mean it makes perfect sense timing-wise. And so last week was about God's pace, and this week is going to be about God's people. And so we're going to look at a couple different people throughout this passage as we go along. Now, one of the things that I wanted to do is bring us geographically into the world of the first century. So I made, uh, got some maps together, and I wanted to show them to you quickly. I also learned in the first service that the little red laser pointer doesn't work when you point it at the TV. It just disappeared altogether. And I was like, that's disappointing because I thought I would be cool if I had a little red laser thing. Um, they don't work anyway. So, so up here, what you see is you see a map of the Mediterranean world, especially the Eastern Mediterranean. Okay, And this is kind of the area in which all of these stories reside. And over on the far left, you can see Rome where Italy is. But then if you go all the way far to the right, you'll see Antioch. And below Antioch, there's a town called Damascus, which is where Paul was traveling and where he was converted. So on the road to Damascus, from Jerusalem to Damascus, you know, he used probably the Roman roads that were there in order to travel. Um, but that's, that's where we read in chapter 8, um, Saul's conver- chapter 9, Saul's conversion to Christianity. So that happened in Damascus. And you can see Ephesus and Corinth and Athens and other places that Paul is going to visit later But our story primarily takes place, if you look in the lower right-hand corner, there's that little blue uh, box. I I got the satellite to track and then zoom in on that little box. So here's a satellite slide of the the next box. Apparently it's been stretched, which is just fine. Um, But what you can see, that's really stretched. So, so at the bottom in the center is Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Bethany, and then, and then Jericho, which is just kind of north of there. Now, Damascus would be north where you can't see on this map. And so what's, what's happening here is that the story is taking place in the regions where Jesus and the, and the disciples have been. And if you look north, you can see where Bethsaida is and Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. And then further north, you'll see a town called Caesarea Philippi. Have you, have you heard of that? Okay. But here's the weird part. If you look over to the left on the, on the coast, you'll see the town of Joppa, which is in our story. And then you go up north, and there's a town called Caesarea. So you have two towns, Caesarea Philippi. And actually, this name of this town is technically Caesarea Maritima, 
which is maritime, having to do with the navy and or the sea. And so these towns have the same name, and that's not uncommon for emperors or people to name towns after the emperor. So they would make a town and they would be like, this is Caesar's town. So if I were an emperor, Boblandia. I should have done, done that. But this isn't, this isn't terribly uncommon. If you, if you actually, if you go to Rwanda, you'll see a Kigemi in more than one place. Um, and so it's, it's not uncommon. It's a little weird for us because then we'd say, well, which town and what are you talking about? But when in our story, if you think about Caesarea Philippi, you'll be wrong. That's on the river and that's north. This is Caesarea Maritima. And it's an important place and I'll explain that uh, why. So this city in particular is of great importance because this is the head of the Roman province of Syria. It's easy for us to get this twisted because we think of Jerusalem as the center of things, which for Jewish people it is. Uh, it's, it's, it's where God resides in his temple. It's where temple worship occurs. And when Jewish people do that, I mean, everybody comes to Jerusalem. And while Jerusalem is important for the Romans, actually Herod built Caesarea Maritima up so that it could be a Roman port. And if you think like a Roman, you would say, well, I need access to that region so I need a coastal city. And so this city actually was the center of Rome in Syria. So this is where all of the, the government officials were, where all of the military might was stored. All of those things is right here on the coast in Caesarea Maritima. So it's the capital of the Roman province of Syria. So I want you to have that context so you know like it's, it's hard for us to switch gears, but this is the centerpiece. And so in our story, we're talking about people from this area. Make sense? Okay, let's jump in. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to all people, and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw a vision of God and came in and said to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. And said, what is it, Lord? Roman soldier, totally freaked out. What is it, Lord? I.e., you're different than I am, and I'm under you. What's going on? He said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him and he departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We're going to stop there. There's a ton to unpack here. I'll do my best to help with this. I want to take a look at Cornelius briefly. Cornelius is a low-ranking military officer. Okay? He's a centurion. Century meaning 100, meaning he has 100 men that are under him. Okay? He's an Italian infantryman. What happens is you get conscripted into the Roman army from the region that's around you. So he's, he's Italian, but he's living in Caesarea Maritima. He probably was of the Italian cohort, which is what it says in here, which means that they wanted really good soldiers from Italy to go over here and stay in the province of Syria. So he was probably pretty good at his job. He's likely retired 
And the reason that we think that he's retired is because you can't follow Jewish laws if you're still in the military, especially the Roman military. It'd be pretty tough to remain ritualistically clean while you're carrying out Rome's orders. Get what I'm saying? Okay. I don't need to get graphic about that. We're going to get graphic in a minute. He's a God-fearer. And we keep hearing this term, and I'm going to lay these out a little bit in, in what that means. But what's happening here is that in this region, the Jews are living together, and the, the lines of those who were with them and who weren't with them were kind of blurred. We, we like to think of it very black and white and in and out, but, but there was a lot of mix going on. People adapted to one another, borrowing customs, language, even religions. And the Jews were to bear witness to God's special love and grace in the world. And so people would see them doing this, and they would say, I kind of like that. I kind of like that God. I kind of like that way of living. So there were people among them who maybe weren't ethnically Jewish, but who followed God and were sympathetic to the Jewish way of life. So you had two different types of people in this group. You had proselytes, and you had God-fearers. And the first one, the proselytes, These are people who became Jews religiously. So they're not ethnically Jewish, but they became Jewish fully in terms of their religious orientation. So they were people who lived in the land before the Jews came. And when the Jews came and they started worshiping, they said, I want to be a part of that. So they they followed the law. They were forced maybe to settle in the land, became Jews Maybe there was a time of war or famine or some other thing. And so they were forced into the Jewish lands and they saw how the Jewish people were living and they said, I like this. I want to be a part of that. These people were treated with kindness. They were allowed to join in the worship of Yahweh and they were instructed in the law. And they were treated with justice. They had a share in the land. When Messiah would restore all things, the proselytes actually got part of the land as well. And they were equal status with Jews who had a birthright. And so they were considered Jewish in pretty much every way. They even followed all of the laws of the Jewish people. All of the male laws of the Jewish people. They followed all the male laws of the Jewish people. They even became circumcised. So to take an adult convert who says, I like what these people are doing and I love how they live and it's attractive to me and I want to know the God that they serve, even so far as to get circumcised. That was a big deal. Many of the Jews at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the people in Acts chapter 2, were proselytes. Many followed Paul and Barnabas and it's likely that the deacons who were made in Acts chapter 6 we're also proselytes. So, so what we're getting is we're getting people who are saying amen to God because of how the Jewish people were living. And then they're finding out that there's this guy named Jesus and it's changing their lives. You also had people who are called God-fearers. Now these are people who are Jewish, but they're more on the periphery. They would take part in prayers They would study the scriptures. You can think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that guy? He's reading the scriptures. He doesn't really know what's going on, but he's he's reading the scriptures, and and he needs somebody to tell him what they say from Acts chapter 8. God-fearers would take part in Jewish charitable work. 
The Jews were always trying to do things to help people around them. And they were bound by Jewish law. But not all the Jewish laws. Like certain Jewish male laws. God-fearers were like, yes, we want to be Jewish. We want to participate with you. We'll stop right there. right? So they, they were on the periphery. And an interesting note. I recently got my hair cut. I know I don't have a lot of hair. Enough with the bald jokes. But so my barbers are Jewish. And he was asking me about our, our worship. And he says, well, do you follow the law? And I was like, well, which one? Because there's a lot. And he says, um, you know, the law. And I said, well, like the Ten Commandments? What, what you know, Deuteronomy. But they, because he's Jewish, he, says, he speaks of them differently. He says, no, 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 the other law. And, and I was like, oh, I just learned about this. I studied this. And I was like, oh, Noah's laws. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Noah's laws are this. No idolatry. No incest. No murder. Profaning God's name. No robbery. And no eating meat cut from a living animal. And I was like, yeah, I follow those. <laughs> I'm a God-fearer, I guess. Right? Those are pretty low-hanging fruit. And I don't know how you get meat off a living animal. But I don't do that. So we're good. <laughs> And I was, but I was like, I, I said to him, I said, are those the laws you're talking about? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, yeah, I follow those. Now, why do I do that? Well, it's because of Jesus. But he doesn't know that. And these God-fearers, they would follow these laws, not because it was like this, ooh, I got to make sure everything's right. But it's like, this is what it means to be a good person here. I want to do this. And I want to be associated with these people. It isn't much of a stretch to think then that Simon the Tanner is a God-fearer, okay? Many of the laws of Judaism would make being a Tanner difficult but not impossible. So we've talked about Cornelius. We have an idea about Paul. We kind of know who Peter is. And then in this story, there's just kind of this brief thing. Oh, yeah, he's staying with Simon the Tanner. This is where we're going to get graphic. The work of a tanner was un- unglamorous, to say the least. Okay? The process of tanning hides would take weeks, and it looked like this. Animal skins were cleaned and softened with water. So already you're dealing with dead animals. It's a Jewish no-no. But once cleaned, they had to pound the hides to remove excess fat and flesh. They had to loosen the hair follicles, so they would coat these hides with alkaline lime mixture... Not limes, you know, but the lime, lie. Uh, they'd leave the hides out to putrefy. That's exactly what you think. And they would take for months, and they would soak them in vats of urine before removal with a dull knife. So they would scrape them, okay? At the batting stage, tanners worked animal dung or brains into their skins by beating, the sticks, uh, beating them with sticks or kneading them in a vat of feces and water. The combination of bacteria and enzymes found in animal waste and the beating or kneading action fermented the skin and made it supple. Don't you just love leather? I mean, I, it's pretty exciting. Anyways, ancient tanneries were always found on the outskirts of towns. Right? It, have you guys ever been around a feedlot? The dairy air? You get what I'm saying? It smells really bad. Tanneries were disgusting, you can tell from this description. 
They were always located on the outside of towns. And there would be these things stretched out. There'd be these hides stretched out everywhere, vats of urine and water and feces. And they would soak them in tannin so that they would become more and more supple. Well, this is not exactly the place you would think you would find a great Jewish person. Right? Go hang out at the Tanner's house. Anybody's last name Tanner? Know anybody named Tanner? Because you can giggle. If you do, you can be like, I know about you. But this is where you might find a Christian. And the reason you might find a Christian is because they, it's not because they didn't observe the law anymore, but you might find Christians associating with the least and most objectified people in society. You want to find a Christian? A tanner is a good place to look. In fact, it's not really remarkable that Peter stayed with Simon the Tanner, What's maybe more remarkable is that Simon the Tanner welcomed Peter. A Tanner was in the poorest and lowest class of worker. They lived on the outskirts of society. They literally smelled, and their work literally smelled. They were ritualistically unclean, and it was gross. And Simon says, yeah, Peter, you can stay with me. And it reminds me of what Peter said in Acts 3. Gold and silver have I none, but what I have you, I, what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus. So I can picture this guy, pretty filthy, saying to Peter, you know, I don't got a lot, but you can stay here. Jews were living in such a way at this time, to attract followers. And not because they were going door to door and knocking on tents and trying to talk to people about Yahweh, the Lord and Savior, you know. But because the lives they lived were compelling to those around them. And it was creating these people groups, these God-fearers and these proselytes who were coming to know God through Judaism and actually setting up the fact that God wants to reach them through Jesus Christ. Living in such a way to even attract Cornelius, a Roman soldier. So if you can get the picture, this Roman soldier in the capital of the province of Caesarea Maritima is told by an angel, go down to this stinky place and find this guy and have him tell you what I want you to hear. It's a bit crazy and it's kind of mind-blowing. But that's what happens. The very image of Rome and its power are coming to Peter in the filth. So Peter has a vision. And the vision says, there's animals and this cloth and all these animals. And and God says, rise and kill and eat Peter. And he says, no way. I, I would never eat that kind of food. It's unclean. And it happens a second time. And God says this. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So Peter's not sure what's going on. He hears from the Spirit, and the Spirit says, there's people that are coming for you. Don't worry, they're from me. Go with them. So these guys show up. And who's showing up at the gate? You know, they're not coming in because of vats of urine and stuff. They're standing out at the gate, and they're going, hey, Simon Peter here, not Simon the Tanner, the other guy. 
And who is it? It's two servants and a Roman soldier. For a Jewish person, that's not who you want to see at the door. And they said, is Simon Peter here? And he says, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? Normally, this would be kind of a spooky time. But because of what God has been doing behind the scenes, we're seeing it played out. And they tell him, this guy named Cornelius, he sent us to come to you because he heard from God. So Peter does something interesting. He invites them in to be his guests. Now, if I'm Simon the Tanner, and I live the way that I live, and I have a meager income and probably quite a meager home that's really smelly, and I'm like, Peter, you can stay with me. I might not have a lot to offer. And then Peter says, come on in, guys. You can be my guest. This isn't, this isn't Peter's house. But he invites them in. And if I'm Simon the Tanner, I'm sitting there going, I didn't plan on this. But what I have, I'll give to you. What I, what I have, you can have. It's okay. There's, there's a generosity here that's missed because we think of it like, oh, Peter just said, oh, yeah, come on in, guys. We'll have whatever you want. But there was a cost to Simon the Tanner to have Peter there and then to have these other people show up. So the next day, they arose and they went with some of the brothers to Joppa. So Peter, probably four or five of some of his followers, and then you've got two servants and a Roman soldier, and they're all walking down the road. They've got a 30-mile walk back up to Caesarea Maritima. So it sounds like a joke, right? Some Jews and some Christians and a Roman soldier walking down the road. Maybe not. That's how some jokes sound to me. But anyways, it's, a, it's an interesting picture because if you saw that, you would assume like somebody's in trouble. What is this Roman soldier doing with these Jews and these Christians? And why are the Jews and Christians together? And wait, why are the Jews with the Romans? And what's going on here? And actually this walk from, from Joppa to Caesarea Maritima is actually a picture of what's going on. It's actually a picture of what's going on. And Peter's presence in Joppa at the Tanner's house is actually a picture of what is going on. And we're going to find out in just a minute. So when Peter meets Cornelius, he's gathered all of his family and friends. And Cornelius falls down at his feet and begins to worship him. Peter says, look, stand up. I'm a man too. I am not the way, but I will show you the way. I can't heal you, but I know who can. I'm not the man, but but I will tell you all about him. So he talked, and he found many persons gathered together. And he said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Then Peter says, I ask then, why have you sent for me? We just did this giant walk, a little tired, not really sure what's going on. And Cornelius tells him his story about his vision. 
and says, So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter is like, why am I here? And they're saying, because you have a message from God. I do? What would you say? What would you say? If you suddenly found yourself in front of people who are anticipating you to share with them what God would say to them, what would you say? See, Cornelius is about to move from a God-fearer to a Christ-lover. And it's the generosity of the Jews and the lives that they lived to make this transition possible. And this was God's intent. They were to show God's special love and grace to the world. And in certain cases, they did it really, really well. Their identity was as people who God wanted to use in every aspect of their lives. How else would a Roman soldier be drawn to God? There's no other explanation. So God was at work in the mundane and everyday life of people that gave others hope. The way that the Jews were living was actually pointing the way towards something bigger than themselves. And it's like God is working behind, behind the scenes, in and through his people. And he's doing it on these Roman roads that don't lead to Rome, but they lead to Christ. Because God uses things we think of as common, and he makes people clean. God uses things we think of as common, and he makes people clean. God uses things we think of as common, and he makes people clean. There are people out there who you believe will never come to Jesus. They're your friends or your family members. Maybe people you despise. You may even secretly pray they don't come to Jesus. It's because of their lifestyle that you don't agree with and their beliefs and their behaviors and you don't think there is any chance for them. But God wants to glorify himself in and through you and me. He wants to so inundate us with his grace and his mercy and his love that our lives are transformed like a, like a piece of animal flesh into something beautiful and supple and wonderful to be used for his purposes. He wants to do this so that we might love the Peters of this world and the Simon the Tanners of this world and the Romans of this world the lost and the lowest and the least. He wants to so consume us with his spirit that such transformation happens in our hearts that we become soft and tender to those around us. Not right and hard and jaded. We don't have to do huge things to reveal Christ to those around us, but to ask him to sanctify our daily lives because of him. Peter clearly said, I am not the one. I'm, I'm not God. Don't worship me. 
We don't have to have all the answers. Because Jesus is Lord, we don't have to be the Lord for these people. We don't have to know how everything works. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to pretend we're someone we're not. We don't have to be someone for God to choose us. Because it's not about us, it's about Him. And He wants to use these mundane and seemingly meaningless things in our lives, everyday things, common things, to make others clean. That they might come to know Him. So maybe it's allowing someone to stay at your house. And maybe it's when you go to the store, you're doing yard work. Maybe it's here worshiping. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's pruning those roses out there. Maybe it's serving in hospitality or ushering. You know, those seem like pretty mundane things. And God uses those things to make people clean. And maybe it's wiping that snotty nose for the 17th time or making another peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch or cleaning up after your kids. And God uses the common to make people clean. And we don't know where people are at. When we interact with them, we don't know what stage they're, they're at in their journey with Christ. And we can't know that. But what we can know is that God has looked at us and he has said, you are clean. If you are Christ's this morning, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, he has said to you, you are clean. And you don't get to call common what God has made clean. Amen? It's easy to think about that for others. It's very challenging to think about that for ourselves. So God would want to take something common and use that thing to make other people clean. That might be you and me. And that's the invitation of God is to so participate in his life that even the common things in our lives that we think are insignificant, God wants to redeem and free other people from their sin and make them clean. That's an attractive life. That's the kind of life that causes people to say, I want to be a part of that. Even, even people like Romans. Right, so I have, I have this last slide, and I can't really see it very well, but we're going to try it anyways. It really, you can't really see it very well. This is a map of all the roads of, of Rome. So Rome made a lot of roads. If you didn't know that, it's true. They're still in Britain and everywhere. And, and in fact, that's why they would say all roads lead to Rome, because you could get on a road and you could eventually get to Rome. And what God did is he took Cornelius, who is the first Roman convert to Christianity, who is centered over there in that little backwater area, but happens to be the capital of Syria. And he opened up the entire Roman world to the gospel. This little Christian community has expanded to include someone whose identity and status were within a culture and society that was totally unlike theirs. And when Cornelius becomes a Christian, 
Rome is open. And when we say Rome, that's Rome. So now, those roads are hallowed ground for Christians to travel with the message of the gospel. And there's conversations that are going to happen in very mundane and tiresome ways that God is going to use to glorify himself. Because the gospel is for the Romans too. And the gospel is for you and for me. And when we ask God to use the common to make us clean, he will do it. Amen? Amen.